If you have a Bible, you can open up to Genesis chapter 4. As you saw, we're starting a new sermon series called Carry the Promise. Um, Before we get into that, I want to uh, read you a little bit about um, someone named Lottie Moon. Can you turn up the house? Yeah, there we go. Uh, So on December 24th, that'll be our Christmas Eve service. We're going to take up an offering, and 100% of it goes to mission. Uh, and it's, we take it up for what's known as the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering. It's a Southern Baptist offering that uh, gives all to international missions. And so uh, while we're going through December, I thought I would read to you a little bit each week about Lottie Moon so you know who she is. So um, Lottie Moon is the namesake of the Southern Baptist International Missions Offering. Uh, she's become a legend, but in her time... Lottie Moon was anything but an untouchable hero. In fact, she was like today's missionaries. She labored tirelessly so her people group could know Jesus. Uh, Before she became a Christian, her pre-missionary life, born Charlotte Diggs Moon, December 12, 1840, in Albemarle County, Virginia, Lottie rebelled against Christianity until she was in college. In December 1858, she dedicated her life to Christ. She was baptized at the First Baptist Church of Charlottesville, Virginia. Lottie attended Albemarle Female Institute uh, as the female counterpart to the University of Virginia at the time. In 1861, she was one of the very first women in the South to receive a master's degree, and she stayed close in Virginia during the Civil War, but eventually taught school in Kentucky, uh, in Georgia, and in Virginia. And her mission work, uh, her sister, Edmonia Moon, Lottie's sister, was appointed to Ting Chow, China in 1872. The following year, Lottie was appointed to join her sister there. And Lottie uh, went to China and stayed there for 39 years as a missionary. Um, Most, she turned down an engagement uh, to go be a missionary. Uh, We'll get to that in another week. Um, She turned it down and went and served for 39 years as a missionary, mostly in China's Shengtao province. She taught girls in in a a girls' school and often made trips into China's interior to share the good news with women and girls. Lottie Moon was passionate about people knowing Christ. She didn't hesitate to speak her mind. Today's today's China is a world of rapid change. It's home to 1.4 billion individuals. That's about a fifth of the world's population, maybe a sixth of the world's population. Village dwellers flock to trendy megacities with exploding populations, and China holds its own in the world's economy, but it's a very different vast it's very different from the vast farmland Lottie Moon entered in the 1800s, but one thing hasn't changed, which is China's need for a savior. And that's who this mission offering is named after. We're going to take it up on the 24th. More to come on her. I have more info that I'll tell you each week, uh, but um, th- it's named after her. She's a, uh, an amazing missionary. And uh, now I'm going to pray, and we're going to go into our, uh, our sermon series for Today, as I said, we'll be in Genesis 4. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your love and mercy you've shown to us in Christ. I pray that as we uh, study your word this morning, Lord, that you would come now by the power of the Spirit and teach us, uh, turn our hearts and minds and thoughts and affections towards Jesus. And uh, may we, as we study your word this morning, see an amazing story of how you would choose to use uh, Eve, to accomplish the, the big purposes of the big story of the gospel. And as we see that, Lord, we'll see that you won't even want to use us and that we would be encouraged. We uh, pray now that we would also have repeated uh, opportunities to understand the good news of Jesus 
and that our hearts would be excited about it and that we would understand the great magnitude of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you can see, we're starting a new sermon series for Christmas. It's called Carry the Promise. And so uh, Carry the Promise is, has a double meaning, meaning uh, what we're going to do is uh, we're going to look at the meta-narrative of Scripture. Meta-narrative is the big story. So there's lots of little stories, but there's one big story, which is God redeeming us. So we're going to study the meta-narrative of Scripture and how God, doing this big picture uh, salvation, how God used four different women to bring the meta-narrative or the big story to us. And so we're going to look at Eve today, week one. We'll look at Sarah, week two. We'll look at Elizabeth, week three. That's December 23rd. And then you'll never guess who on December 24th, Mary. So, uh, so as we look at that, um, obviously it has a double meaning uh, in that they literally carry the promise for nine months that God has made to them so that each generation, uh, one day the Messiah will come uh, from those uh, children that they carry. But also uh, we carry the promise uh, by knowledge of the gospel as his children, we carry it with us to go tell other people. And one of the greatest Christmas presents, obviously, you can give this week is that you would tell somebody about Jesus. And so uh, we're going to, as, we, as I said, uh, look at the meta narrative of Scripture through kind of the lenses of how God used these four particular ladies uh, to do that. So the point of the narrative that we're looking at is that God is faithful. God is faithful and continuing the line of the seed of women through Eve and each one of these women, and that he's greatly used to carry the promise to the good news to us. So that's kind of the big idea of what we're looking at. So um, as I said, each week we'll look at a different lady. Today's Eve. Uh, next week is Sarah. The following week will be Elizabeth jumping to the New Testament. That's John the Baptist's mom. And then finally, Mary. So Genesis 4 is where we're going to start. Uh, and you can see, starting in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife. So I want to stop here. Uh, and what, before we get into chapter 4, I want to look at chapters 1, 2, and 3. Uh, but uh, what I'm going to do is just kind of tell you some things that we know about Eve. So looking at chapters 1, 2, and 3, there's some things that I think it's helpful for us to know about Eve uh, from Genesis 1, 2, and 3 before we get into chapter 4. Uh, here's, I've, I've written down four things. These won't be on the screen, but I've written down four things. You can see the title is Eve's, uh, I was going to say Eve's small part in the big picture, but then I thought, well, it's kind of a big small part since she's the first mother. So uh, it's, it's, it's pretty big though it's small comparative to all the people that play it. So Eve's big small part in the big picture of the gospel. So before we get into chapter four, there's four things I want to talk about, things that we know about Eve from Genesis one through three. There's multiple things we could say, but these I think are four big ones. Uh, the first one is chapter one, verse 27. It says, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. If you're not familiar with the creation story, Chapter 1 is kind of the big picture of how it all happened. Uh, and then chapter 2 is where it kind of zooms in. And so as we look at chapter 1, we see this. Uh, and uh, 27 is that male and female, it doesn't zoom in on chapter 2 and say first Adam, then Eve. It just tells us chapter 1, male and female, he created them. And he created them in the image of God. So the first thing we know about Eve uh, from chapter 127 is that she's made in the image of God. She's made in the image of God. Which means this, that she has inherent dignity, inherent dignity um, and value and worth because she's made in the image and likeness of God. And so uh, this also makes 
every single, since she's the first mother, every single one of us, it makes uh, her our great, 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 and then a lot of greats grandma. So um, we're all related to her in some way. But the first thing is that she's made in the image of God. The second thing that we can know about Eve um, is literally in the next, very next verse in chapter one, uh, verse 28, where it says, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the heavens, and every living thing that moves on the earth. Um, this is the creation mandate or uh, to fill the earth. So the second part is this. If the first one is that she's made in the image of God, the second part that we're, the second thing that we can know about Eve is she plays an active role, a very active part of the plan of the creation mandate. Um, it's, it's absolutely important in order to populate the earth for Eve to obey Genesis 1.28. Um, and Eve and, and all the other women that come after her, they play an integral part in this. And so uh, from this, uh, filling the earth and subduing it, we'll see that eventually the Messiah comes. And so it's super important that Eve obey Genesis 1.28, which she does. Um, so... First is that she's made in the image of God. Second is that she plays an active part in the creation mandate. Third is uh, from Genesis chapter 2, verse 22. Uh, it says this, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from, from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. The third thing that we see is that she was made from the rib of Adam. And if you look at verse 18, it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And so uh, God makes a helper, uh, which, is, which is Eve. So the third thing we can see is that she was made from the rib of Adam. So God used Adam's rib to make Eve because there was no helper fit for him. Now, we just got, in, in, in chapter 2, we just saw uh, all the animals kind of paraded through in front of Adam, male and female, and they're going to be able to populate the earth with their species, right? Um, and then all of a sudden, he realizes that he doesn't have a counterpart, and so he makes him go to sleep. And so he says, you don't have a helper fit for you. And so one of the major reasons that uh, God does this Praise all the animals to help him see that there's no one like him. So he's unable to obey Genesis 1.28 without, without Eve. And so there's multiple things that she has brought forth as a helper. But uh, some of the things that I want to point out to you of how she's going to help Adam uh, is, one, she's going to help him fill the earth. Uh, he, he has to have a helper in order to do that. And so there's no way that he can do it without Eve. Uh, that's one way that she's a helper. The second thing is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, you see this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and to keep it. Um, to work and to keep it. Now, it, J Dr. John Salehammer says that when you see this word to work and to keep it, uh, the, the way that Hebrews vocalized, if it's just vocalized just slightly different on work and keep, it can also mean worship and obey. So he's intentionally saying that this is all pre-fall that God put Adam in there and he's, he's to work and keep the garden, to tend it. But also as he does it, revocalization of those two words, that Adam is able to worship and obey God by doing this. And so he has no helper fit. And so another way that Eve helps is that he come, she comes alongside him and helps Adam tend and keep the garden by helping him worship and obey God by doing it. So it's essential it's essential for Adam to be able to have Eve to help him worship and obey God rightly. 
which means it's the same for us. Um, men who are married, in order for you to worship and obey God rightly, God has set up the world so that you would have your wife come alongside you and vice versa, men that you would come alongside your wife and that you would push each other on in sanctification. And by doing this, you are helping each other um, grow in, in, in your sanctification. In, in other words, you're helping each other worship and obey God correctly. So she's made from the rib of Adam to be a helper, to fulfill the, cre- the fulfilling of the, the, the earth and um, to worship and obey God correctly. And then lastly, you can see this in chapter 2, verse 24. It says, after, after they're, they're married, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so the other way that she becomes the helper is to be his one flesh and to serve as his wife. And so uh, three, first three things that we know about Eve are she's made in the image of God. She plays an active part in fulfilling the earth and subduing it. She's made in the, from the rib of Adam and, and becomes his helper. And then the last thing is this that we know about Eve in chapter 3. Uh, I want you to look at verse 15 now. This is said to the serpent. So if you start at uh, verse 14, you see the Lord God said to the serpent. And so this is the curse to the serpent for tempting Adam and Eve to sin. And he, when he curses the serpent, the serpent apparently used to walk around and it says, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field and on your belly you shall go uh, and the dust you shall eat. So um, since man's made from dust, just showing that he's nothing with, besides the fact that he's made from the image of God, he cursed the, the snake to, to walk around and now slither on his belly as dust as kind of a sign that he's nothing. And then it says, all the days of your life, you're gonna be like this. And then in verse 15, now, this is a, a message that he says to the serpent. However, as he says it to the serpent, Eve is present, likely even Adam, because right after he says it in verse 15, it says, to the woman he said, and then he keeps going. So this verse 15 is said to the serpent, but, but she's there, which makes my po- fourth point. But let's look at it. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And so uh, that's why I think she's present. Between, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the fourth thing that we have is this, is that she heard the first gospel. She heard this the technical term is the proto-evangelium. Eve was present and heard the very first time the gospel was given to us. Um, and so technically, even though it was given to the serpent, she was there. Not only did she hear this first gospel, but she and Adam now, as, they're, as they hear it, uh, they know that the promised Messiah is going to come between her offspring and the devil's offspring. They're going to have uh, an eternal kind of fight where you can see what happens. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Uh, Jesus will bruise the head of the serpent, but the, ser- the serpent or uh, those that work for him, his children, will bruise the heel. So when he goes to the cross and dies, Jesus' heel is bruised, and it looks like all is over, but because of the resurrection, he, he defeats Satan's sin and death and comes and destroys the serpent. So when you look at this little graphic, you can see Mary here stomping the head of the serpent. Mary actually isn't the one that does that, right? It's the baby who does it. So we don't believe that Mary is the deity that kills uh, and defeats Satan. We believe it's Jesus. But nevertheless, it's just graphic. It's just art. So, uh, but what we have here is the fourth thing, which is that um, she hears the first gospel. Now, as you're reading through the first three chapters of the Bible, as soon as you read chapter 315, the whole Bible, 
all of it, every single one of us should be thinking, who's the offspring? Where's the offspring? What about the offspring? Every one of us, all we should be thinking about is, there's an offspring coming who's going to make everything go back to the way it was before the fall. The, the rest of the Bible, chapter 4 of Genesis through the end of Revelation, every one of us should be thinking, who's the offspring? Where's the offspring? When's he going to come? And set everything back to where, how it used to be in the garden. The rest of the Bible is about the offspring. And so as you're reading and as you're studying, all we should be thinking about is, now obviously we know the big picture, which is Jesus is this offspring that's going to come set everything right. Um, one one uh, commentary says, humanity is now divided into two communities, the redeemed who love God and the reprobate who love themselves. The division finds immediate expression in the hostility of Cain and against Abel. So as soon as this happens in Genesis 3, we already see there's two parties and Cain takes one and Abel takes the other, which we'll see, we'll see that in a minute. This prophecy finds ultimate fulfillment in the triumph of the second Adam, obviously that's Jesus, and the community united with him over the forces of sin, death, and the devil. The rest of Genesis trace, traces the woman's offspring beginning with Eve's son Seth and ending with the sons of Jacob. Ultimately, find Ultimately, this line of descendants leads to Jesus Christ. And so as we're looking into Genesis 4 now, uh, all that we're thinking about is who's the offspring? Where's the offspring? This offspring is going to be the Savior. And immediately, I mean, immediately is when you get to chapter 4, boom, she has offspring. And so we're all thinking, is this it? Is this the promised Messiah? Is he the one that's going to make everything right? And so uh, the writer is intentionally wanting you to like, be on the edge of your seat. It's like you watch that 40-minute Netflix and you're like, oh, man, what's going to happen next? It's kind of late, but let's start the next one. Boom. And like, so you start Genesis 4 and he's like, oh, problem answered. Here it goes. And Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore Cain. And you're like, this is the offspring. This has got to be it. So obviously we know it's not, but that's, that's the way the Bible's being written to us. Now, uh, um, as we look at chapter four, it's, there's really kind of four big picture ways to look at it. Um, the first is, this will all come up, but we'll get it in a second, uh, is the gift of the sons and how the sons kind of uh, ruin everything, and then eventually how God gives grace even after that. So verse one, now Adam knew Eve. Now when we see this word knew, it's just not the Bible using a euphemism uh, to not talk about sex. Uh, it is that, but there's a whole lot more to it. It describes in the Hebrew this deep understanding and knowledge of a husband and wife that they have of each other. So uh, husbands and wives should really know each other, really, really know each other, know everything about each other. So Adam knew his, Eve's wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, and she says, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord, or literally, I made a man. Now, this has never happened before. So it's just them two. And all of a sudden, it's not like somebody's like, yeah, we've done that, Eve. We already got the t-shirt. Like she's just there. And all of a sudden she has a baby, boom. And she's like, oh, there was just two of us. I just made a third one. Like I just made a man. Look at that. Um, and so as she's doing that, she's obviously pretty surprised. But there's, there's a little bit of distinction uh, with how she's saying it in verse one and with whenever Seth comes at the end. So in verse one, She's, she's kind of taking, she does say with the help of the Lord, but she's taking some credit for herself. Like, look what I did. I made a man. You can see the stark difference in language here. Look, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore another brother, Abel, and the Abel was the keeper of the sheep, etc. So if you look at that, I've made it. Uh, as she goes through this, wreck, this horrible tragedy of her sons, you can see at the very end, whenever God's gracious, look at verse 25. 
Uh, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. So it's, it's a little bit slightly different language to where it's not like, look, I made a man as much as just God has appointed it all. God has done it all. Uh, but nevertheless, she's pretty amazed here because that had never happened before. And she's just like, look at this. We made another one of us. This is amazing. Um, and so she ha- now has great confidence that ex- uh, Genesis 3.15, the first gospel, is coming to fruition. Uh, and you have Cain and Abel. And so she's thinking it's got to be one of these. Cain uh, means here he is. Abel means vapor or breath. It's, it's not a great name to have. It's like if I, we had one of our children and we named him Short Life Chambers, uh, it would be like, well, that's not a good name to have, Short Life Chambers. I wish that wasn't my name anymore. And sure, sure enough, Abel, Short Life Abel, uh, Vapor Abel, he does have a short life. Um, but it's definitely an ominous name. So uh, now Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain was a worker of the ground. So number one, you can go ahead and put up point number one. So as we're looking at this regarding Eve, uh, Eve's big, small part in the big picture, God's faithfulness to Eve is shown in verses 1 and 2 with the gift of her sons. Um, He promised there would be an offspring, and then he gives two offsprings. And had Cain not chosen this ridiculous, horrible thing, one of these two offsprings, likely Abel, would have been the one who carries uh, the, the Messiah forward to eventually come. But we know the story, likely you've... You've been familiar with it. You have Cain and you have Abel. And we have this uh, devastating setback to God's promise that happens. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock, their fat portions, to the Lord. Now, bringing fat portions is good. F-A-T is P-H-A-T back then. Do we still do that? Is P-H-A-T still a thing? It's not anymore, is it? I'm too old. So back whenever I was in college, like P-H-A-T was pretty cool. But here, I'm old, so... This is a good thing. He's bringing his fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and fell on his face. So here we have these two guys, uh, and they knew that everything they get is a gift from God. They intuitively knew this. Everything they get is a gift from God. Not only do they know that, that also there should be an offering back from what they receive, just like for us. Everything we get is a gift from God. We intuitively know that, and when God gives us things, we intuitively know we should offer back things to him. And so they offered the fat portions. Um, They offer from their vocations, whether it be from vegetation or from animals, they offer back with with what their their vocation is. Uh, And so what we see here as we keep going is that we're going to get, go ahead and put up number two uh, so you can see it, is that there's a devastating setback to God's promise. The sin of Eve's son and concurrent generations that all the way through verse 24 is going to be a setback. And so setback isn't the best word. Uh, it's, it's almost as if Adam and Eve have to think to themselves, well, we've let this promise slip through our fingers. I mean, the Lord promised the offspring. We have Cain and Abel. We'll see here in just a second that Cain's going to kill Abel. So we had a good son and a not good son. We had those two communities. One's good, one's bad. The good's gone. We only have the bad. Why would God use the bad to carry forth We've let this promise slip through our fingers and it's our fault. God has no reason to, to, to give us another son to make it happen. We ruined it. And so, uh, as we can see here, um, they, they want to bring their best, but um, whenever you're going to bring your best offering, Cain and Abel, worship that's pleasing to God, um, 
is worship that springs from a pure heart, as Salehammer would say. And so Abel brings his worship from a pure heart. Cain does not. Uh, it doesn't tell us anything necessarily in the text of why Abel's is good and why Abel has a good heart and Cain does not. Uh, but for that, we would have to look at the New Testament to be able to, uh, to, be able to fully understand what it is about uh, Cain and Abel to, under, to, to know why uh, Abel's was accepted and, and Cain's wasn't. So briefly, I'll, re, I'll read these three texts to you so you can see, because it's not necessarily obvious in the, in the text here. But Hebrews 11.4 says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more accept, acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, commending him uh, by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So hence we can guess from that, that means that, that Cain was not righteous. So Abel's sacrifice was acceptable and Cain's wasn't because Abel's was righteous and Cain's wasn't. Abel had faith, Cain did not. First um, John 3.12 says, we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. So here we can see not only did he not have faith and was he not righteous, but he was also of the evil one. He was an offspring of the serpent. And why uh, did he murder him? Because of his, his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So here we see Cain did not love. He was of the evil one. He did evil deeds and, a and Abel did not. Uh, we also see uh, that in Jude 1.11, woe to them for they false teachers walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished uh, in Korah, Korah's rebellion. So here we can see like those in the New Testament, Cain is portrayed as godless and greedy and selfish at any, at any cost. Uh, as John Calvin says, Cain conducted himself uh, as hypocrites are accustomed to do, namely that he wished to appease God as one discharging a debt by eternal sacrifices without the least intention of dedicating himself to God. He just tried to look good in front of God without actually giving God his heart. And so uh, from the New Testament, we can see Cain's offerings weren't accepted because he wasn't righteous, he was of the evil one, he did evil deeds, he was godless and he was greedy, and his heart wasn't like his brother Abel. Abel did not have those things. And so, um, as we keep going, you can see uh, in verse 4, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? The Lord accepted his Abel's but not Cain's, and Cain sees this, and he's angry, and his face fallen. And then in verse 7, God's going to talk to him and give him advice here in verse 7, which is important for us all. If you do well, if you do well, this phrase, if you do well, Salehammer says this, this phrase is used in Jeremiah, and it means, uh, it can be understood as, if you really change, and if you really change by obeying and doing what's right, and you live a life of faith, so uh, if you know anything about Salehammer, it's all about living a life of faith and doing well. And so he's a textual scholar and he says, if you do well can be understood as if you obey by living a life of faith. So if you do well, meaning if you just believe in me and follow me by faith, Cain, then look what it says. Will you not be accepted? Well, this is the gospel. If you just trust in me and live a life of faith, you'll be accepted. And if you do well, and if you don't do well, or if you don't live a life of faith, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire for you, is for you, but you, but you must rule over it. And so uh, we see here that sin is being personified as a wild beast crouching ready to devour him. 
And so he's saying, what are you going to do, Cain? I see that your face has fallen. I see that you're angry. But the reason why is because your heart's far from me. You're not like Abel. You, you follow the evil one. But if you would stop doing that and live a life of faith, then you will be accepted. The same for us, right? If we will put our faith in Christ and follow Jesus as our only hope, we will be and always will be accepted by God. But if we don't, then sin is crouching at the door, ready to devour us, ready to overtake us. So the same uh, prescription to Cain is given to us. And so here sin is used in uh, verse 7 for the first time in the Bible. And the second sin in the Bible is listed to us uh, here as you keep going. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they went in the field, Cain rose up his brother to his brother Abel and killed him. The second sin recorded in the Bible Uh, He did not take the Lord's advice. Instead, jealousy overruled his heart. And the Lord said, Cain, now obviously he knows the answer to this, right? Uh, When he asked this, it's similar to chapter three, verse nine, where he said, Adam, where are you? Who told you you were naked? Like he knows the answers to this, um, but it still is for the benefit of Cain. And then the Lord said to him, where's Abel, your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, of course you are. Uh, uh, you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself, and you know this because the law is written in your heart even before it's given. Uh, so yes, you are, uh, but obviously he, he is very selfish. And the Lord said, what have you done? And then it says this, watch this, this is interesting. The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me. So blood is personified and given a voice, and it's crying out to God that he was murdered. So this crying, whereas Abel's blood cries out for vengeance, from the ground, there's a difference because Christ's blood cries out for us as forgiveness. There's, there's a similar, as Gredena says, Abel turns out to be the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman. Abel's blood is crying out to the Lord from the ground because the ground's cursed. But there's a difference, whereas Abel's blood cries out for vengeance, Christ's blood cries out for forgiveness. Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews helps us understand in Hebrews 12, 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel cries out for vengeance, for I've been killed. But Christ isn't that way. Christ went to the cross, cross willingly for us, and his blood cries out forgiveness. It's an amazing, amazing, unbelievable uh, gospel here that, that's being explained to us all the way in the very beginning. And so we see in the midst of all these setbacks, God's still going to be faithful. Uh, Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's crying out to me. And now uh, you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, now he, he didn't kill him here. The Lord could have just said, okay, Cain, you're done and ended his life. But he shows him this amazing kind of grace where he, he's not going to be the offspring, the chosen offspring, but he does let him live. Uh, when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. That's no doubt absolutely true. Um, Salehammer argues that this is the central question of the entire narrative. These words can be interpreted as remorse and repentance when he says the punishment is greater than I can bear. Uh, Some commentators say that it's not repentance at all, Uh, but everyone should say this. Everyone at this point, whenever we 
uh, are challenged with what it says in verse 7, if you do well, sin's crouching, we should be able to say, the sin that's crouching at our door that's ready to destroy us, we should say, it's more than I can bear. The sin, my sin and my iniquity has brought me to a place that's more than I can bear. What hope do I have? My only hope is Jesus. We should all be brought to that point. And so even Cain is, but it's, it's obviously too late um, because he's already killed his brother. He says, my punishment is more than I can bear. He's not likely truly repentant. Behold, you have driven, uh, driven me today from the ground uh, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wonder on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said, here's the, here's the grace, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who should find him should attack him. So that's the kindness of God by saying, I won't let anybody kill you. Now this mark, uh, lots of speculation on that. Every bit of the speculation is likely wrong. We don't know what it means. Everything that's ever been said about it is complete speculation. <laughs> the only thing we know is that mark was by God so that Cain got to live. Any other thing after that is just nonsense. It's God's grace that that mark was there saying, don't kill him. Anything else after that, we don't know. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now, there's a whole lot more into that statement than what you would just kind of think as narrative. Whenever he, quote, went away from the presence of the Lord to the land of Nod, east of Eden, um, this is where when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, they went east of Eden, and he, they're going east of Eden, and all that signifies, east of Eden signifies away from the presence of the Lord which is a caution thing for us. Um, we don't want to wander away being alienated as a, as a sojourner away from God, as a wanderer away from God. We want to stay in the presence of the Lord. And he willingly, because of his sin, chooses, just like his parents, to go east of Eden and wander away from the presence of the Lord because of his sin. Now, when you get to verse 17, huge jump in time. 16 to 17, lots of years pass. The reason why we know that is because we had Cain and Abel. Cain killed Abel. And then all of a sudden, verse 17, Cain knew his wife. <laughs> Wait a second here. How did that happen? Well, um, how did he get a wife? Large jump in time. We just don't know. Presumably, the only thing that makes sense is it's a sister. And Adam and Eve must have had some, some daughters not recorded. It's the only thing that we can understand um, to be the case. But nevertheless, here we are. If it was something that we absolutely had to know, it would be in the Bible. There we go. Verse 17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. Now, what we're going to see here in 17 through 24 is just uh, the continual growing, not just of, of Cain, but all of his generations afterwards of even more sin. So that's why I say the devastating setback to God's promise, the sin of Cain and his generations. 17 through 24 just shows us just how bad it gets uh, being from the line of Cain uh, and not Abel. Cain knew his wife. She conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the city, the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. Uh, to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujal. Mahujal fathered Methushalel, or whatever. And Methushalel fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. Not right. Genesis 2.24 has already told us that. Um, his two sons are pretty, pretty funny what their names are. They're almost the exact same. Uh, the wife uh, of Adah and the other was Zillah. Adah bore Jabel and Zillah bore, uh, bore Jubal. So you got Jabel and Jubal. Um, the father of, who dwelled in tents, his brother's name was Jubal. Uh, you also had Zillah bore another son, Tubal-Cain. 
And he was the forger of all the instruments of bronze and iron. Now, there's grace in here and there's, there's depravity. You can see the grace and the depravity all together. And you can see verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, Adam Zilla, hear my voice, you wives of, of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, um, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventyfold, sevenfold. So he's bragging to his wife about how his sin of killing people is even bigger than Cain's, right? Just ridiculous, right? Completely immature. So it's sad because Cain's generations go the way of Cain and become even more sinful. But it's grace in that Genesis 127, uh, I'm sorry, 128 is being fulfilled. Even though God doesn't have to let the earth being filled and they're actually building culture. You can see they're building cities, they're building culture, they're playing music. And so there's grace in it that God is letting these people actually build cities, build cultures and create and fulfill Genesis 128. But at the same time, it's sad because um, the ones that are doing it are in the line of Cain. And you can see that the depravity increases rather than becoming more like God calling on the name of the Lord, etc. It just gets worse and worse. And so uh, the devastating setback to God's promise, if you get to the end here in verse 24, and there is no 25, 26, you would just think, well, I guess the offspring thing's done. <laughs> you just got Cain and all of his generations who are just horrible people. They're building culture. It's not necessarily great, um, but I guess it's all over. I guess everything's done. But God comes to Eve in verse 25 and shows amazing grace to her. Just remarkable grace after all this has happened. Surely at this particular point, if we're looking at it from the perspective of Adam and Eve, the promise looks all but over. There'll be no offspring to strike down the head of the serpent. Even more so, uh, Adam and Eve could probably say to themselves, we don't deserve any kind of second chance whatsoever. And yet he comes to Eve and he says, I've made a promise to you and it's gonna happen. And so here, Eve, you will carry the promise of the seed forward. And it says this, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, which means granted. This is almost like grace granted to her. And she says this, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. So we all, she knew that the offspring was supposed to be Abel. And when Abel died, in their minds, the promise was over. And God shows this amazing grace to Eve and say, and say, you don't deserve this, Eve, but here, here's another offspring who will carry forward the promise of Genesis 3.15, and his name will be Seth. To Seth also was born um, a son, and he called his name Enosh, and here it is, here it is, and here's the amazing grace. In contrast, this, this last little part, 26b, in contrast to the generations of Cain, look what the generations of Seth start doing. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. People began to call upon the name of the Lord. So there's fresh hope after this horrific Lamech who's bragging about killing people. Um, and where we think Genesis, the promise of Genesis 3.15 is over, God comes to Eve and grants her grace by giving Seth. 
and he's appointed another offspring, and she acknowledges that this child is totally from God. God's given the sole credit for the child. And similarly, we see God's kept the promise and provided this offspring that everybody should be reading and looking for in Genesis 3. And so we get to the end of chapter 4, and our next 40-minute thing is over, and we're like, oh, problem resolved. We're going to have to see what happens next when we get to Genesis 5 and see what's, what's the next thing that's going to happen. But nevertheless, God has proven himself to be amazingly um, amazingly gracious and faithful. And he's promised our redemption now through Seth. And Eve is going to carry the promise and give birth to a child named Seth. Um, and Enosh, uh, even though it means weakness, one commentator, commentator writes, it's the consciousness of human frailty symbolized by the name Enosh that heightens man's awareness of the utter dependence upon God in this situation. Uh, and, it, and it always evokes prayer. And then when that happens you see the contrast of Seth's generations versus Cain's generations. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And now, like Abel, who made worship acceptable, Seth's children are calling upon the name of the Lord, and they're also seeking him and worshiping, and worshiping God now correctly. They're known as the Lord's, and they're crying out to the Lord. One commentator says, Cain's firstborn and successors pioneered cities and civilized arts, but Seth's firstborn and successor pioneered worship. And so uh, Seth is almost the, the second Abel who's worshiping God rightly. So culture and art is great, but worshiping God is what God wants. And so as we conclude here, we see the gospel going forward and the offspring um, is, is being promised through Seth. And so Eve is, get, is being used by God to, to carry on this promise of Genesis chapter 3.15. The offspring, the capital O offspring, really did die. Um, the Abel didn't die willingly, but the capital O offspring, Jesus, he really did die willingly. He went to the cross for us. Uh, and like Cain, we've walked away from the presence of the Lord and we deserve death. But God like Cain, gave us mercy that we didn't deserve. He gave us mercy that if we would do well, if we would live a life of faith, put our faith in Christ, that we would also be accepted. That promise in verse 7 is being made to us that we can also, if we put our faith in Christ, we will be forever accepted. The promise that's made to Eve and to Seth and all of those uh, demonstrating that God is faithful is being made to us through Jesus and he is still faithful in saving us. And so Christmas for us, looking back, is about remembering this promise that's made to these great women who carry the promise like Eve or Sarah, and there's a lot more, Elizabeth and even Mary, and that Christmas is about remembering those promises that God ma that he made, that he's faithful to uh, fulfill these promises, specifically through Jesus, and then by Christ we're saved because of the gospel when we put our faith in him, because he went to the cross for us. And now that we are believers, we carry the promise and we go and we share this good news with other people. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this amazing, uh, this amazing news that you have given to us. And uh, how you choose to fulfill the big picture of Scripture, the big story of Scripture through uh, so many common people like Eve. And whenever we see that you use Eve or you use Sarah or you use Elizabeth, um, who are just really um, not necessarily in of themselves amazingly gifted or talented, 
that you, you would use us, that we can see that you would use us to accomplish the big picture uh, that, you're, that you have uh, laid out in Scripture, that you are calling men and women back to yourself. We thank you, God, that you, uh, you are faithful. We thank you for Seth. You didn't have to uh, be gracious to Adam and Eve, but you, did, you were. Even though their son Cain killed Abel, and it looked like the promise was over, that you were kind and you were gracious to them by giving them Seth. You granted grace to them, and you continued the offspring, which eventually brought us to Jesus, as it says in Luke 3, from Seth all the way to Christ, by giving us your own only son who would come take all the anger that we deserved on the cross from you, and we get all of his righteousness. What an amazing gift. And Lord, as, as we are believers now, we carry this great news in our hearts. Help us want to uh, share this with people this Christmas season. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.